Morse code in your butt? You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch. This is the show where we take a deep look at some of the untold stories behind some of history's favorite and not so favorite songs and artists. Uh, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I don't like your tone. No? Well, today is obviously a beloved artist. A beloved artist. Uh, I am your host, Lindsay Tucker. Uh, with me, as always, is Aviv Rubenstein, who is quite the defender, I guess, of ABBA right now. Yes. Indeed. Well, so I'm going to make you a, an ABBA believer by the end of this episode. Okay. Got 18 pages of ABBA for you. Did I ever once say I didn't like ABBA? I feel like you rolled your eyes at me a couple times. Because you're very intense with it. I Okay. So, <laughs> listeners, this has been an episode that's been... This is an episode that's been brewing for a long time. I knew that I wanted to do a big ABBA episode. All of my friends know that I have a deep love and affection for ABBA, an unironic love for their pop stylings. And so uh, I want to thank James Gutierrez, friend of the show, for just gifting me, for no reason really, other than I love ABBA, the the complete ABBA magazine, the the full the full story, or I forget what it's called, but I I use that for a lot of the sources for this, plus Grunge.com, The Guardian, and Music Oholics. There's like a ton of just like ABBA historical play by play by plays, plays by play. Is it like editors in chief? No. Plays by play. I think it's play by plays. Um, and so instead of listing every source as it comes, just know that it's all from those places today. But before we get into today's episode, how are you doing, Lindsay? Hi, I'm doing okay. Like I said, a little bit stressed as we all are part of the grind. Yeah. I'm just ready to quit the daily grind. So if anyone just wants to, um, sponsor my life, that would be awesome. Mm -hmm. She's taking applications for sugar daddy or <laughs> sugar mama, mommy. Oh yeah. Either. Any. No discrimination. Any sugaring. Any. any All sugar's sugaring. welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, me too. A little stressy, depressy, but, uh, you know. Baseline. Baseline for you. Yeah, baseline it's for me. It's turning out to I'll... become baseline for me now. Like, this is not okay. I'm sorry I've infected you with my <laughs> pessimism. I'm like Archie Bunker, like screaming at the news, like listening to the radio. Like, my life is not going well right now. <laughs> Call, calling your son-in-law meathead. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, today we're going to be talking about ABBA. The I I know, I know for certain that Lindsay will not let us have another ABBA episode about this. So this is going to be the complete ABBA episode. Whoa! I don't think that's true. I do not know why you're you're acting like I am so anti ABBA. It's actually so okay. Mind blower number one. It's not pronounced ABBA. Oh, woof. Starting off with the real. I know. It's pronounced Abba. 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 Not like that. That's <laughs> You don't like that one? Uh, excuse me, uh, 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 Mr. Record Shop Owner, do you have any Umba? <laughs> um, yeah, so my friend Cornelia, who is from Stockholm, pronounces it Abba. 
but I will not be doing that because I think that that's the same as asking for some pollo fajitas at a restaurant. I know. So, I you know, I'm mozzarella. Say, I'm like, um, Mozza, mozzarella. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to say ABBA because that's how I've always pronounced it. And the song of the week, the main song of the week, there will be a couple other ones that we listen to, is The Winner Takes It All. So let's take a listen to the song first because we're going to be uh, departing from it for quite a while. Oh, great. What even is this show? Who knows? Who's to say? <laughs> So what are you seeing right now? I'm just seeing a blonde lady with too much blue eyeshadow singing at me. Yes, but in that in that particular shot, there's like hands playing the piano in the foreground. We're gonna talk a lot about those hands. It makes you feel sad 
Original music video with these photos? Yeah. This is 1980, so, you know, music videos are like. Yeah. But the, what, tell me about those photos that you saw. They're just black and white photos of the band looking, I don't know, stage laughter. Yeah, yeah. They're like press photos. Yeah. Right. Well, the solo, okay, there's a reason for that, too. Okay. How much do you know about ABBA? Um. What do I know about ABBA? They, they're from Sweden, right? Aren't <laughs> they? Are they? From, they are from Sweden, yes. <laughs> Did they win one of those um, big contests that they Rachel McAdams made the, a movie about? Yes. <laughs> so on April 6, 1974, ABBA burst onto the world stage by winning the 19th annual Eurovision Song Contest for their home country of Sweden. And it was with their song, Waterloo. Okay, I did know that. I did know that Waterloo was the winning song. Yes, in 1974. So let's take a quick listen to Waterloo. Because okay. this, is, this is the Waterloo performance from Eurovision 1974. Oh, great. We're moving now across into Sweden. And You're going to love this. You're going to love their countries. intro. And although we're looking at streets, it's a country full of mountains, lakes, and forests. And of course, it's full of blonde Vikings. And uh, this is blonde one of the Vikings. reasons why it's good for pictures. These are the Whoa. ABBA group. Born. Yep, I'm getting the Nazi Frida. vibe already. Anna, who's just beside her with the long blonde hair. And Benny. Uh, if you can work that out, that's why they're called ABBA, because in fact it's Benny born Annie Fried and Anna. They made their first record in 1972, and uh, if all the judges were men, which they're not, I'm sure this, this group would get a lot fuck. of votes. You'll see why in a minute. Their song is called well, uh, What's Napoleon. Creepy About It? Popping out from behind blades of grass. And the dude's like, if all the judges were men, they'd certainly win because everyone wants to fuck Anna. Waiting for Waterloo by ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one. Our accents are a little more pronounced. Very pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can we just talk about like some of the outfits? Tell me about the outfits. Okay. 
We've got one that's looking very kind of sound of music-y, except lots of mm-hmm. sparkly chains on top of her, like... Uh, that would be Ani Freed, yeah. The other Ani. It's Anna and, and Ag- Ani. Agneta. Wait. So uh, the curly-haired one is Ani Freed. Oh, that's who I they think. wanted to fuck? I Maybe they wanted to fuck Agneta. They, <laughs> they wanted to fuck them both. Who's to say? <laughs> okay, so All yeah. Right. So... so- Ani Freed is dressed like Heidi, the mountain girl. Yes, uh, except she has a lot of bling and like a um, metallic heart on her sleeve. Uh huh. And then the Agneta. other one is wearing like um, head to toe Smurf MC Hammer pants with <laughs> knee like, high like, uh, gold boots. Correct. <laughs> and then the guys are wearing like Kiss outfits. Well, no, he's B- it looks Benny. Like a who's lot on of the velour is happening. Yes, Benny, who's on the piano, and Bjorn, who's on the guitar, are both wearing like Napoleonic war gear, but velvet and like kind of like glam rock. We'll talk yes, a little bit about yes, because what are those thing. like um, cuffs called? The sleeves that are like Henry the oh, Eighth. Like it's he has a oh, and don't forget about the blam guitar. Yeah, the, the the yes, the glam guitar fucking rules as well. So we're going to talk a, a, bit, a little bit about all of the things we mentioned, but I can't talk about them all once, unfortunately. <laughs> so we're going to go backwards in time a little bit. We're going to go backwards in time for a little bit and then forwards in time. It took me a, 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 a long time to figure out how to structure this story. So we're going to actually... Tell it in reverse for a second. Okay. We're going to go from 1974 backwards, and then we're going to go from 1974 forwards. As the announcer mentioned, Abba had been together since 1972, and this actually wasn't the I first time. I thought we weren't doing Abba. I, I tried to give it a, I gave <laughs> it a shot. <laughs> Abba. Uh, as the announcer mentioned, Abba had been together since 1972, and this actually wasn't even the first time they tried to win Eurovision. That's normal, right? Don't people like continuously go back on American Idol? For sure. So they're known for winning in 74. um, And in fact, the Eurovision Song Contest features their performance in like the opening montage. And it was uh, voted the best song in the history of Eurovision at the 50th anniversary of Eurovision in in like 2000 or something, 1999. Okay. Um, but they had a false start before their eventual victory. The four entered in the 1973 contest as Bjorn, Benny, Agata, and Agneta and Frida. That was the name of the band. Bjorn, Benny, Agneta, and Frida. They're and they placed, full names. Yeah. Well, not their last names, but yeah. B- Bjorn, Benny, Agneta, and Frida was the name Just of the band. Just rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. And they placed third among the Swedish entrants. So they didn't even win for their country. Okay. But it was, it was for their song, Ring Ring. Okay, I know that one. So a year later, now using the na- name ABBA, which is, as the announcer mentioned, an acronym for the members' first, first names, Agneta, Benny, Bjorn, and Ani Fried, they entered with the song Waterloo, and w- they were the first ever win for Sweden in, in Eurovision. They were the first ever Swedish group for Eurovision. Um, and so this is this is Ring Ring, which is a song that they said eventually was cursed. It was cursed. They said that they they said that the song became cursed or was cursed. Sick. 
So tell me a little bit about the musical styling compared to like what we know of ABBA for uh, what we know ABBA from. This is a little more like rocky. Mm-hmm. There's like a um, little Richard style piano. Yeah, like a honky tonk piano and some uh, distorted guitars. Yep. Kind of like rockabilly-ish. And their outfits just... Are amazing. Keep getting better and better. Yeah, so... Ani Freed is in like a snakeskin romper. Which I would wear it's open tomorrow. To her, which is <laughs> open to her navel. <laughs> Fucking Benny is just hideous. Just, <laughs> just horrible looking. Oh, that's There Bjorn's is a though. choker. <laughs> yeah, Bjorn's wearing a choker. Benny's just chilling. Benny's kind of good looking. Um, Benny's kind of got like a Elton John mm-hmm. yeah. vibe. And uh, and Agneta is dressed like Harley Quinn. A hundred percent. Their other guitarist is just normal. He's just in the <laughs> like back in a, in a t-shirt green and, polo shirt. Yeah. And Belfano's. So so this is the part that blew my own mind, which is before before that, the members of ABBA were all pop stars in their own right. They were. So yeah, before ABBA, all the members were Swedish pop star singers of varying popularity. Benny Anderson, who's the guy on the piano, was a member of a band called the Hep Stars. Um, and they were like the Beatles of mid to late 60s Sweden. And they had 20 top 20 hits and nine number ones. He was 18 at the time. Yeah, this is, this is fucking weird, man. This is so weird. To me, this is not as much uh, the Beatles as it is maybe like the Birds or yep. early Kinks or something. Yep. I agree with that. But they were massively, massively popular. I mean, I don't hate this little chirping round situation that's happening. <laughs> no, I think it's cute, right? <laughs> yeah. And then Benny met Bjorn Olvis, who was also 18, when the Hep Stars played a party with Bjorn's band called the Hootenanny Singers. The Hootenanny Singers. Oh, yeah. Get ready for some Hootenanny Singers. <laughs> okay. So the two men met, created a kinship, started writing songs together. This is the Hootenanny Singers singing Nordenwind, Zudenwind. Swedenwind. Nordenwind, Swedenwind. And what does that mean? North wind, south wind? Yeah, northern wind, southern wind. So this is like the Swedish Simon and Garfunkel sort of thing. No, I mean, I, it's fine. It's definitely... It, I think if there were some women, it would inject a little more energy, like mamas and papas, instead of just like... Sure. I'm bored. Some guys thinking about wins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Benny's the one... I'm sorry, Bjorn's the one in the middle. I mean, they look like creepy robotic twins. I mean, they look like Nazis right now. Well, they're fucking sweet. <laughs> 
Um, so the Hep Stars, which was Benny's band, eventually broke up thanks to the financial stress of making a never-released movie in the vein of the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night, as well as the members' desires to go in different musical directions. During the last weeks of the Hep Stars in 1969, Benny met and started a relationship with Annie Fried, or Frida is her nickname. Frida! Frida Lingstad, a pop star and jazz singer who had won a 1967 Swedish national talent competition, and with that came a record contract. She'd been singing since she was 13, and Benny produced Frida's 1971 solo album, which featured a number one Swedish hit, Mein Egenstad, which means like my own town. And Benny Bjorn and Bjorn's wife, Agneta, were on the backing vocals of that. So this is technically the first song that all the members of ABBA ever sing on together. Sorry, Min Egenstad. My Swedish is a little rusty. Reminds me of like raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I like this one. Yeah, it's cute, right? Got some horns. And it feels a little Abbey, right? Like the hook is kind of. Kind of reminiscent of like a laid-back Waterloo. So, it th- this this article says Bjorn's wife Agneta was on backing vocals. Well, Agneta was already also a Swedish star, and she had a self-titled album in 1967 that topped the Swedish charts. And it it was her. It was a single called "I Was So in Love." This one's kind of yeah. This one's kind of sexy, right? Yeah. So she's like the Nancy Sinatra or whatever. Agneta fell in love in real life with Bjorn at the age of 19 after meeting him in a cafe, and they were married by 1971. Okay. Benny and Anifried were also living together by 71, but they didn't get married until 1978. So this is from Musicoholics. The two couples joined together and started making music in 1970. Dot, dot, dot. Well, kind of. (laughs) (laughs) So they went on a holiday together to the island of Cyprus. Fun. And what started out as a fun idea to sing on the beach became an improvised live performance in front of UN soldiers who were stationed there. Oh my gosh. That's so ABBA. It is so ABBA. (laughs) Uh, At the time, Benny and Bjorn were recording their first album, like as co-songwriters, and that was supposed to be released in the fall of 1970. But this would be like if, if in the 
late 90s, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and Brian Luttrell were all dating, all went on vacation, were like, fuck it, let's do a super group. <laughs> I could see that. I think in an alternate timeline, that hap- that's happening. Yeah, but so the the weird part is this supergroup became so much more popular than each of the four of them ever were that it's like hard to remember for anybody that they all had careers before this. Oh, it's like relatively like obscure information. Yeah, I didn't I I count myself as a big ABBA fan and did not know this until yesterday. Okay. So uh, Agneta and Frida sang the backing vocals on several tracks of this album that they did together. And the idea was raised that they should all work together, which culminated in a stage a- stage act called Fest Folket, which translates to party people. <laughs> their show, their first show was November 1st, 1970 in Gothenburg, and it didn't get a big wow, but there was one performance that did. Um, and they officially formed a group in 1972 after a hit by Benny and Bjorn called People Need Love, which featured Frida and Agneta on backing vocals. And so this was the like, this was the fest and fest folket. This was like their first foothold was People Need Love. People need hope. People need loving. People need trust from a fellow man. Wow. This is the by far the worst song. <laughs> That we're gonna listen to today but it's very like come on everybody love each other sort of thing when i went to summer camp they had this band that came every year called vitamin l and the l was love and they sang songs like this oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> vitamin l for sure <laughs> and and bjorn is just getting uglier that hair day by day Got like John Denver I'm not hair. having a great hair day, but this takes the cake. So, People Need Love led to an invitation to enter the Swedish section of the Eurovision Song Contest. So, someone heard that um, and was like, Somebody get these guys. Yeah. Okay. And so, at which they lost with Ring Ring. Okay. Um, and a, after they lost with Ring Ring, so we're back to 1974 before jumping back even further. Uh, a competition to find suitable names for the group was held in a Gutenberg newspaper because Bjorn, Benny, Agneta, and Frida was not good. Wait, so, wait, 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 what's wrong with that? It just doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> so the some of the um, some of the entrants that impressed the group were Alibaba, Fab, Baba. And in the end, all the entries were ignored, but it was officially announced in the summer of 73 that the group were, were to be known as ABBA. And the rest is history. Uh, we're actually not, we're not going forward yet. Before <laughs> that, Ani Fried had a, a bit of a sordid past. just a like sordid many, past. Sordid past. Just like many of her other Western European contemporaries. You know, there's a bit of Nazi stuff in there. I th- okay. I thought you were going to be like, she slept with her professor. No, no. There, well, there is a, <laughs> there is a, no. There, there is a song called When I Kiss the Teacher, which fucking rules. You would say um, that. I would say that because it's a good song. Love so it. it's, it, you know, it is just as bad as you think, but in a different direction. Okay. 
So, so this is an article from June 2002 from The Guardian called The Torment of the Abba Star with a Nazi Father. The Torment of the Abba Star with a Nazi Father. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, quote, when Abba sang Knowing Me, Knowing You, there was one member of the cult Swedish pop group for whom it had a special meaning. Ani Fried Lingstad is one of thousands of people who grew up in Scandinavia shunned, persecuted, and parentless. It's alleged that some were even used as guinea pigs in drug trials. What? Yes. Known as the Teiskerbarnas, or German children, they were the offspring of Norwegian mothers and German soldier fathers, the result of a Nazi plan to, quote, enrich the Aryan gene pool. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to wait till the end. I mean... <laughs> So the so the Nazi plan was not only to conquer everybody, but you know there's a there's pillage and there's also the other thing. So, long story short, Anifried's mother was assaulted potentially by a German soldier, and Anifried was the product of a rape. Of product of rape. It's not so. It's not actually explicitly said that it was a rape it was just a liaison but like if you have a fucking occupying army in your country you don't need to convince me (laughs) yeah right so Anifried's story is typical of the suffering of thousands after her birth in november of 1945 the result of a liaison between her mother sinny and a german sergeant alfred hasse the Infant's mother and grandmother were branded as traitors and ostracized in their village in northern Norway. They were forced to emigrate to Sweden, where Anifried's mother died of kidney failure before she was two, before the daughter was two, Anifried. Right. Quote, she achieved amazing things in Sweden, something she would never have been able to, to had she stayed in Norway, where she would have been branded a freak says the spokesman for the organization representing the children. Founded in 99, the group is called Craigsbarn for Button Liebensborn, or Source for Life, and it takes its name from the scheme run by Heimlich Himmler, the leader of Hitler's SS, to create the Master Race. So this was, this was like a codified thing that the Nazis were doing, was like spreading Nazi fluids all over. Sure. Yeah. Not that spreading your seed everywhere is not a science experiment. Was there other kinds of like scientific other kinds of tests carried out on these kids? Yeah, so so the tests were actually done or the like the guinea pig kind of tests were actually done also by the Norwegians cuz they were like a lower class of of children that they could like experiment on and whatnot. Um yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, so so basically these these we're children of a lesser god because the Germans definitely couldn't claim them after the war, and the Norwegians didn't want them after the war. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Pursuing its this organization has been pursuing its claims for compensation for abuse and discrimination through the domestic courts, and the case involves 122 people and argues that the wartime Norwegian government was complicit in the Nazi scheme to breed the blonde breed with blonde blue-eyed norse women mm. so that so like the 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 nor the favorable to the nazis norwegian government was like nah, fine it's worth noting that Anifried is the not blonde one mm. the brown curly 
the brown curly haired one. The Norwegian government asserts that if crimes were committed, they happened too long ago to be dealt with now. Oh, for sure. No props. Yeah, right. Um, so as of 2014, no, as of 2002, the case is now going to the country's Supreme Court, but the victims and their families are pre- prepared to take it to the European Court of Human Rights, having been rejected by Norway so far. We have little choice but to take our case further afield. We see, quote, we see Norway as a rundown gas station in comparison to the gleaming motorway service that is the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. What? Says, yeah, so the, this guy Brandisher, uh, who's the, the spokesperson for this organization, he's calling the Norwegian court a rundown gas station in comparison to the European Court of Human Rights. I hear this, but I'm just like, what? Where? He doesn't give a shit about what they say because he's already planning on going to the teacher. Um, And so he himself, Brandischer, is the son of an Austrian elite soldier who who raped a Norwegian woman. Um, And he said that Norwegian government, the Norwegian government is likely to face a huge embarrassment once the case receives full international attention, which I don't think it ever really did Mm -mm. because... You know, this is new information to most people, I think. So most of these children who stayed in Norway were social misfits. Very few have received proper education or been employed. Quote, it's typical that they've suffered from depression and low self-esteem, says uh, this is from their lawyer. Most have had problems forming relationships or being able to relate to the real world, which is hardly surprising when you spent your formative years being called a German idiot, a no-good bastard who doesn't deserve to be alive. Hmm. Had Germany won the war, they would have almost certainly been heroes, but Germany lost, and soon after, the Norwegian mothers lost their status, and their children were classified as rats by government officials. I don't know whether that's literal rats or, like, figurative rats, but either way, these are fucking kids, you guys. Yeah. So it gets a little worse. The post-war hatred toward the offspring of German soldiers was so great that the government psychologists commissioned a report on the children and their mothers... And it concluded that women who had fraternized with Germans were, quote, of limited talent and asocial psychopaths, some of them seriously backward. Yes, let's blame it on the women. Yeah, it's it's totally the women's fault (laughs) for living in an occupied country and for both governments being like, "Mm, you should do this or you might die. You'll definitely die. You will 100% die. Yeah, the verdict of father was a German was an indictment enough to send children to mental hospitals where many were tortured and raped they were deemed to be dangerous because of their nazi genes and capable of forming a fascist fifth column you guys if you're doing the eugenics too you're not okay so the nazis they were doing the eugenics and that's why we didn't like them and now you're also doing the eugenics (laughs) you see but we're the good guys right the wartime Norwegian government was desperate to be rid of the problem and attempted to send the Tykensbarnas as far afield as Brazil and Australia. And Sweden was praised for taking several hundred children and thus relieving Norway of an embarrassing problem. Around 250 were sent back to Germany, which I'm sure was great for them. Yeah, I was about to ask, what happened then? Yeah, so many thousands of their mothers were labeled German whores and sent to Norwegian concentration camps where they were slave laborers. Fantastic. And so so honestly, I don't know want to say this lightly, like it's kind of good that her mother escaped to Sweden and then like passed. Like 
this is this is a fate worse life sure yeah it wouldn't wouldn't have been a good life of the of those children who ended up scattered around 128 norwegian children's homes many of them were released from these like prisons as bewildered adults only in the early 60s into a world in which they had little to or no experience so they were basically like boarded up in these children's homes and never saw the light of day okay um we also talk about a, a woman there's like a there's like a, a pretty harrowing tale of what the norwegians did to one of these children this is not any freed this is this is one of these other children um so until today i loved norway you know yeah this is no norway's got some issues um in many ways the most shocking aspect of the whole story is what happened to the children in the homes in a separate case that is attempted to bring the norwegian government to task over documented evidence of drug trials carried out on both children and mothers witnesses and documents say that experiments with lsd mescaline and other substances were initiated by the norwegian military oslo university and the cia of course the cia has entered the chat <laughs> mic drop um and specifically the worst the worst story is for harriet von nickel who was born march 1942 uh the road to justice is long but worthwhile quote as a two-year-old living with foster parents i was chained up with the dog in the yard she says in her best-selling autobiography german child might have been better with the dog yeah right as as a six-year-old i was thrown in the river by a man from my village who wanted to see whether the witch would drown or float. Ugh. At the age of nine or ten, she says, drunken villagers from Berser near Trondheim branded her forehead <gasps> with a swastika made of bent nails and oh threatened to rape her. A woman saved me, and I rubbed sandpaper on my skin to get rid of the swastika. <gasps> oh, oh. That's so fucked up. I want to cry. Yeah, really, really bleak shit. And so Anifried was uh, one of these lost children and luckily made it to Sweden and had like a, a normal-ish life, was able to, you know, win talent competitions and, and become a, a singer. Normal-ish. <sighs> okay. Does it get any worse for her or is that her rock bottom? Uh, it, well, she, Anifried was not the one who had to rub sandpaper on her skin. And no, no, no. Yes, I know. So, yeah. That, I mean, how could your life get worse than that? Well, we'll find out. But um, it's not. There's n th This is the worst, most graphic thing we're going to talk about today. Okay. If that's what that's you're asking me. Okay. So, back to Eurovision. In 1974, the group entered M Melody Fest, Me Melody Festivalen, which was the Swedish, like, qualifier for eurovision it took them to the eurovision finals by this time they had adopted their name of abba um but abba was also the name of a swedish canned fish company Ugh. and so they had to like clear it they like asked the company and the company <laughs> agreed to, to allowing their name to be part of the pop group and they were like yeah it's fine but you just have to wear um you have to dress like fish you have to dress like fish. So soon after the tr this triumph on the stage, Waterloo was number one on the charts all over Europe, 
even reaching the top 10 in the US where the Eurovision Song Contest had no impact at all. Right? No one even knew about it. Knew what it was. Yeah. Okay. So the album of the same name was also a huge hit in Sweden. However, there was like a stigma of being the winners of the Eurovision Song Contest, just like there's a stigma of winning American Idol, right? Yeah. You're not a serious musician. Yeah. So it made it difficult for ABBA to be taken seriously when they tried to follow this first success. At first, ABBA seemed destined to be one-hit wonders. After the worldwide success of Waterloo, their albums and subsequent singles didn't chart, including Ring Ring, which they released after Waterloo, and they, they said <laughs> was pretty much ignored in the UK. In the same article, Bjorn explains that they were still experimenting with their sound, and they were trying to sound more like the sweet, like the sweet, which is the name of a band, Okay, um, which is like a, a glam rock group, which was stupid because we were always a pop group. <laughs> <laughs> he went on to say, Ring Ring is cursed. I feel like that's kind of an overstatement because nothing really I, well, came I out of it. <laughs> He's being a little dramatic. Their no? first European tour of 74, 75 featured several poorly attended shows, causing the band to scrap plans to play in the UK, France, Belgium, and other countries, and to cancel Switzerland shows due to poor ticket sales. So really, like, their follow-up single, Ring Ring, put them right back in the toilet. <laughs> Um, in the summer of 75, the group went back to their roots and towards small Swedish folk parks, as they had done before Waterloo. And they also released their third album, which was just called ABBA. And it produced their first international hit since Waterloo, two of them actually, SOS and Mamma Mia. And Mamma Mia kicked off Australia's, Australia's lifelong affair with the group ABBA. Mamma Mia was number one on the charts in Australia for 10 weeks. All right, 10 weeks, you know, that's a long time. It's not like Titanic long or anything, but Oh no, we'll get we'll get this is they're still they're still picking up speed here. So, finally, let's talk about the outfits, right? They're on tour, they're wearing these crazy outfits, they're doing the videos. We got all kinds of crazy outfits. What's the deal with the outfits? I told you they had to this... dress like fish. No, weirder, weirder <laughs> even than that. So this is from this day in music. The outrageous stage outfits were an easy way to save money on their tax bill. I'm listening. ABBA exploited a Swedish law that said that clothes were tax deductible if their owners could prove that they were not used for daily wear. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> So they could write off all of their costumes the, the more outlandish they were. <laughs> the problem is that people started dressing like them eventually, but whatever. <laughs> of course. That's great. So by the end of 75, they had enough hits for a Greatest Hits album. That's right. After three albums, they had enough hits for a Greatest Hits album. You know, Mandy Moore put out a Greatest Hits album after like one and a half albums. That rules. So they released... That Greatest Hits album in Sweden in 1975, the rest of the world, early 1976. The compilation also included a new song called Fernando. And Fernando was another international smash that was number one in 13 countries and Australia's best-selling single of all time. Of all time? Yeah, up until that point. Whenever I think of the song, I think of that 70s show, Hot Donna. I don't know. I don't know about that 70s show, Fernando. Hey, um, 
Do you recall that night we crossed the Rio Grande? What? I can see it in your eyes. What are you talking about? How proud you were to fight for freedom in this land. Shut up, don't. Don't. There was something don't. in the air don't. that night. The stars were bright. Hello, they're making out. I'm missing it. I, okay, I've, I've seen I've seen the make out. Is this like your, I really want for your spank you bank? What's happening here? <laughs> Shut up and dance. They were shining there for you and me. And liberty. Fernando. Though I never thought that we could. I think that was the first time. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So real quick digression on Fernando. Um, it's one of us. This is from Spin Diddy. Uh, it's one of a small group of singles that sold more than 10 million copies in Australia. This includes Elton John's Candle in the Wind and Bing Crosby's White Christmas. White Christmas is the best-selling single of all time. Uh, anywhere. In Australia, performing the single on live TV, the audience was larger than the number of people who watched the first moon landing. Oh, shit. Fernando was released by ABBA in, 19, in November of 1975 and went, quote unquote, viral in 76, selling 6 million copies that year alone. It hit number one in 13 countries and was the best-selling single of all time in Australia. This song was an epic victory for ABBA in Australian because Australians are now, quote, the most fanatical of all ABBA fans. So Fernando was originally comp- composed for Frida's solo album. It was. So it's It was. So this is before they even met. Yeah. Well, no, they they met, but they weren't making music together. Cuz Benny and Bjorn wrote some songs from first Frida's solo album, which is called Frida Alone. Frida Alone. Um and so the Swedish version Frida opens the ABBA version of the song and sings it alongside the other female vocalist, Agneta. And the Swedish language lyrics were written actually by the manager, Stig Andersson, ABBA's manager. And they're very different than the English language versions. In the Swedish version, the narrator tries to console a heartbroken Fernando because Fernando has lost his great love and the sorrow can be hard to bear, but the fact that friends let us down is something we all have to cope with. The lyrics to the chorus are, long live love our best friend Fernando, raise a glass and propose a toast to it to love Fernando, play the melody and sing a song of happiness, long live love Fernando. The English version... Totally different lyrics. Oh, tell me. And it's about a totally different story. What is it? B- Bjorn Olvis, of, of being an ABBA, wrote the English language lyrics. And according to an interview he gave in December of 08, Olvis was imagining a picture of two war veterans reliving their past when they were young fighters under Emiliano Zapata in the Battle of the Mexican Revolution in 1910. It's very different. Very different. So Olvis thought the original lyrics were, were boring and sought a storyline that matched the name Fernando. And so he made the story up. It's not based on anything that actually occurred in the Mexican Revolution. So real quick, Emiliano Zapata Salazar was a lead figure in the Mexican Revolution. And he was the main leader of a peasant revolution in the state of Morelos. Uh, and he was also the inspiration for the agrarian movie called Zapatismo. So my the thing that's interesting is after... Four years and three albums, they released a greatest hits record. The new song on the greatest hits record wound up being their biggest hits to hit to date since bigger than Waterloo. But 
just like Waterloo, they went back to the well, so to speak, of discussing famous war figures as metaphors mm. for love without really understanding the understanding the history behind the war figures. For sure. I, this is really weird. It was at this point that Annie Fried found her father. What? So this is from The Guardian. In 1975-ish, Annie Fried found her father by chance. They met for an emotional reunion at her Swedish villa. And this was instigated by Benny Anderson, her ABBA bandmate and husband. Afterwards, the singer said of the meeting and of her father, it was difficult. It would have been different if I had been a teenager or a child. I can't really connect to him and love him the way I would have if he'd been around when I grew up. Plus he's a Nazi. Plus he's a Nazi. The depression she subsequently suffered was attributed by friends to the delayed encounter with her long-lost father, who was at that point a retired pastry cook. And Annie Fried withdrew for years in Greta Garbo style. I don't know. I'm not super f- f- <laughs> I'm familiar with Greta Garbo's thing. Um, but she's viewed as a role model for her fellow Tysker Barnes, who are still living in Greta Norway. Garbo is known for her melancholic, somber persona. Okay. So firmly entrenched in the superstardom after the success of ABBA and Greatest Hits, the band released their fourth studio album, which was called Arrival in 1976. And in a review in Pitchfork, Simon Goddard notes that the band's image is one of international pop idols at this point in their history, starting with LP cover with the LP cover on which they finally looked like superstars. The, uh, in the on the cover of the album, they're in a private helicopter. They are so they finally look like superstars, the kind who traveled in private helicopters, like the one on the cover, in which they are cocooned with curiously cool expressions. Cocooned with curiously cool expressions. Yes, Arrival is most notable for being the album that Dancing Queen is on, which became ABBA's signature song and their only song to ever hit number one in the United States. In a 2016 Guardian interview, Frida remembered bursting into happy tears upon hearing just the backing vocals of Dancing Queen and called it absolutely the best song ABBA have ever done. Do you agree? No. I actually strongly dislike that song. So we're not going to listen to it. What? In 77. What? What do you mean? <laughs> we're skipping Dancing Queen. We all know what Dancing Queen's like. I know. I'm just surprised that you skipped something. You're like on a James Cameron tear with this one. Listen, I told you we're doing the complete <laughs> ABBA. In 77, uh, the band set off on a European and Australian tour, which brought in 100,000 people in Europe and 150,000 in Australia, which at that point was like half the country. Um, quote bjorn and the strange thing is can you remember ever being approached by anyone who came up to us and said hey look i've got some really nice drugs here oh no frida responds never never bjorn bursts out laughing never not even on tour it's amazing isn't it well where did this come from the Guardian. This is a, a, a double in, in, dual interview with the two of them. They said that they never did any drugs on tour. <laughs> mm. But did the Guardian ask them, like, hey, did you do any drugs? Or were they yes. just like, oh, okay. Literally, yes. Okay. Like, oh, we, did you, like, party a lot in the 70s? And they're like, no. No one ever asked us. But 
Okay. Lies. Frida says, yeah, right. Frida says that they were home a lot. So they, they would, they started having kids. So they were um, doing 14 days on, 14 days off. And so they, Frida says, we were at home a lot. So they would have had to come to our houses and knock on the door to offer us drugs. <laughs> we never Squeaky went clean, out. <laughs> says, yeah, right. Squeaky clean, says Bjorn, but it's all true. Yeah, fucking right. We don't believe you. So. The band also began filming ABBA the movie during this tour, which was a supposed behind-the-scenes tale of an Australian DJ attempting in vain to interview the band during their tour. Did it come and out? Yeah. We're going to watch the trailer, baby! Woohoo! Rolling Stone described it as a mix of concert footage, music videos, and quote-unquote candid backstage footage filled, film, actually filmed months later at a Stockholm hotel and some man-on-the-street interviews. This is more a predecessor of carefully plotted and planned reality TV than a typical documentary. And ABBA the movie was released in conjunction with their fifth album, ABBA the album. So this is the trailer for ABBA the movie. So I, I get what they mean by they're starting to look like rock stars, like, but they are absolutely all on cocaine. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> no, we're squeaky clean. Squeaky clean. Abba, the pop group. Do you know where they're staying? Who? Pop group. Abba. Mamma mia, does it show again? You haven't got a press pass. Well, I have, but I... I you haven't got an interview either, have you? I think they're a fantastic group. What do you think of their presentation? <laughs> because I think they're nice and clean. <laughs> cursed <laughs> not creepy at all the time is not ripe yet for an interview actually i'm trying to remain friends with you but you are making it bloody difficult So Ben Benny finally got his hard day's night. The project that split up his previous group. <laughs> you know? Are you an ABBA fan? A lot particularly. But I hate him. <laughs> I don't see this as like reality. This looks just completely staged. Well, a hard day's night was not reality either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but this article's like they are predecessors to reality TV. Oh. Uh, well, is reality TV real? No, but but it's it looks a little realer than this. <laughs> this just looks like a movie. I'm I'm, I'm doing a, a radio special that it has to be on air tomorrow night. Uh, and I really need that interview. Look at that fucking stadium. But that's so many fucking people. 
Grazie. So, fun fact from this day in music. During the Cold War, currencies from behind the Iron Curtain were embargoed. However, ABBA was quite popular in the Soviet states, and they couldn't accept rubles, so the band instead received royalty payments from the Soviet Union in oil commodities. Please tell me more. Which can, well, there's not, not a ton more to tell, except for it contributed to each of them being worth over $200 million. Wow. I mean, do you consider this moral corruption or what? Complete, complete moral corruption. <laughs> I mean, like, listen, it's not up to them what the Soviet Union pays them in. So, like, whatever. But, like, this is all, all kinds of fucked up. <laughs> But it wasn't all fun and games. There was some interpersonal fighting, and Agnetha didn't like the fame. So this is from Musicoholics. Agnetha described how her, their fans would get really hysterical and bang on car doors. Mm. But, quote, but they were also very nice, she added, because God forbid she sound ungrateful mm. for the adoration. Uh, she said sometimes they could hardly leave their hotels due to crowds. It was frightening, but we had so many people taking care of us. Agneta also admitted having dreaded going on stage. Performing live, as she said, was not her favorite. I'm more of a recording person. I prefer to be private. I didn't mind doing videos if they came very close with the camera. I can take that. But walking on stage in concert and singing live, that was a bit difficult. And so I don't think we looked or sounded very good. (laughs) Okay. Walking on stage is a problem for her? I I guess so. She also revealed that they didn't have any professional dance help. They did, just did it all on vibes. So their concerts were very different every night. Nothing was formalized. They didn't have like dance routines, which many pop groups of the time had. Yeah, you could kind of tell. She also said that she and Frida didn't talk beforehand about what they were going to do. <laughs> just show up and vibe. Yep. They had been described as, quote, not being friends. Really? Yeah. And being in competition all the time. But according to Agneta, they had something concrete between them on stage. She admitted that there were some bad feelings between them when they grew exhausted with their heavy schedules, but they consisted of, quote, little niggles and differences of opinion. In other words, nothing serious. So they were probably hugely passive aggressive towards each other. (laughs) They must have been. In 78, Benny and Bjorn bought a former movie theater and they built a uh, music studio around it called Polar Music. This was in Stockholm. And it was one of the all-time great recording studios. It was used by Led Zeppelin, Celine Dion, Beastie Boys, Ramones, Genesis. Fun. Yeah. 1978 also saw the marriage of longtime couple Frida and Benny, which soon was followed by Agneta and Bjorn's announcement in 1979 that they were getting a divorce. Oh, okay. The band stayed intact and moved forward despite the split, seemingly using the experience to lean in to what the Guardian Guardian called their ability to counterpoint joyous melodies with melancholic, even depressing lyrics. Hmm. Now, were they writing all their own songs? Yes. Benny and Bjorn basically wrote everything. Okay. 
not not all of them, just Benny and Bjorn. Got it. And and that had uh, I think that there was like a little little something prob- problematic with the movie because Benny and Bjorn got more of the royalties than the girls. But I don't I didn't actually find anything to support that. I just heard a rumor. The article calls the song "If It Wasn't for the Nights" a disco song with lyrics of utter despair. Sure. Um, despite starting the year with two of their members breaking up, 1979 brought two ABBA albums, Voulez Vous and Greatest Hits Volume 2, another tour, which included the U.S. for the first time. And in her autobiography, As I Am, Agneta described the tour in less than rosy terms. Quote, Bjorn and I were agreed about doing this tour together, despite the divorce. So we had to form a new relationship with each other and work together in a new way. It wasn't. It was an unfamiliar situation for all four of us. An ordeal by fire. Ordeal by fire. Yeah. Despite the personal problems, the tour was hugely successful and ended with six sold-out shows at Wembley Arena. Wow. Yeah, and they recorded those the those shows at Wembley Arena, and finally were they were released as a live album in 2014. Although. We associate ABBA with disco music to this is from grunge.com. Although we associate ABBA with disco music to this day, Voulez Vous was actually the first, the band's first foray into disco. They point out that the band was in crisis during the making of this album and could no longer rely on the image of a collection of amiable, committed couples making pure songs about life and love. So you're saying Fernando is not disco? That's what, no, Fernando's absolutely not disco. It's okay. just a pop song. The tumultuous result was unfamiliar, disconcertingly sexy disco music. I feel like all their songs were disco. Uh, oh, but like Waterloo is definitely not disco. Ring Ring is not disco. Okay. Right? The winner takes it all. I guess Waterloo is isn't. Yeah, sure. Super not disco. So as the 70s progressed, this is The Guardian. As the 70s progressed, <laughs> ABBA seemed almost detached from the changing musical landscape around them. At times, they would embrace their trends, like uh, like the disco album Voulez Vous, in which they finally introduced a groove to their sound. Uh, that's fucked up. While other times, such as when punk arrived, they would simply ignore them. Quote, Bjorn said he never felt threatened by punk because ABBA were, quote, so completely different. But in truth, they had a lot in common with the movement. Both shared a healthy disdain for the excesses of progressive rock that had dominated the early 70s. Both focused on brevity and both viewed the holy grail of pop to be the seven inch single. Bjorn smiles. This is like a, the Guardian loves first person articles. So mm-hmm. this is this is a first person thing from the Guardian. Bjorn smiles when I ask if he thought punk was a bit of a racket. Quote, well, I never quite understood it. There was a musical element missing. The rage, I could hear that. But young men have always been angry. There were, that was no different from other young men. Frida nods. Quote, punk never got into my heart. You hear the anger now in rap, for example, but it's different. And I like that very much. Eminem is one of my favorites. Eminem. <laughs> the, the, the author of the article is like, really? And uh, Bjorn says, cleaning out my closet is a great song. If punk didn't topple ABBA, then something closer to home looked bound to. So in 1979, in an interview with Zigzag Records, Bjorn announced 
I'm sorry, Bjorn introduced Agneta on stage as my former wife, which <laughs> seemed unimaginably awkward. <laughs> and that brings us to the winner takes it all in 1980. So in March of 1980, ABBA went on their last tour, which consisted of 11 sold out shows in Japan, including six in Tokyo's famous Budokan Arena. And in July, they released the single The Winner Takes It All, which is yet another infamous ABBA breakup song. The song, in particular, is widely understood to be about Bjorn and Agnetha's divorce. Mm. So let's take a look at the lyrics to The Winner Takes It All. Okay, let's. I don't want to talk about things we've gone through, though it's hurting me. Now it's history. I've played all my cards, and that's what you've done, too. Nothing more to say. No more ace to play. The winner takes it all. The loser standing small. Beside the victory. That's her destiny. I was in your arms thinking I belonged there. I figured it made sense building me a fence. Building me a home. Thinking I'd be strong there. But I was a fool playing by the rules. The gods may throw a dice. Their minds as cold as ice. And someone way down here loses someone dear. The winner takes it all. The loser has to fall. It's simple and it's plain. Why should I complain? But tell me, does she kiss like I used to kiss you? Does it feel the same when she calls your name? Somewhere deep inside, you must know I miss you. But what can I say? Rules must be obeyed. The judges will decide. The likes of me abide. Spectators of the show always staying low. The game is on again. A lover or a friend. A big thing or a small, the winner takes it all. I don't want to talk if it makes you feel sad, and I understand you've come to shake my hand. I apologize if it makes you feel bad, seeing me so tense, no self-confidence. But you see, the winner takes it all, the loser has to fall, throw a dice, cold as ice, way down here, someone dear, and it's plain, why complain? So this song fucks. You love this song. I love this song. I think the song is great. And and it does juxtapose the like kind of it's not I would necessarily say like a happy tune, but like definitely a bouncier tune with like pretty transparently sad lyrics. The music is sad. The music is sad, but not as sad as lyrics. So So you said like exclusively Bjorn and Benny wrote the songs. Yes, well Bjorn wrote this song oh. and Ag- and Agneta sang it. That is fucking weird. So this is the so Guardian. So he the found fact, a new woman? He did find a new woman, yeah. So the fact he then arranged for his former wife to sing the song has sometimes been portrayed as an act of sadism. Although yeah. he begs to differ. He begs to differ. He's like, I don't he think says, so, guys. He says, I don't know. He says, no, <laughs> not at all. I think she loved the words. Frida agrees, though. Says, quote, she did. And remember the song was for so many people, not just B- Bjorn and Agneta. Bjorn also throws in, it was a fiction, remember? There were no winners in our divorce. Agneta seems to disagree, though. (laughs) In a 2013 interview with the Daily Mail, she named the song as her favorite ABBA song. And she says, Bjorn wrote it about us after the breakdown of our marriage. The fact that he wrote it exactly when we divorced is touching, really. It was a fantastic thing to do, that song, because I could put such feeling into it. Uh, this is the evening standard, but it's still a uh, uh, Agneta quote. I didn't mind sharing it with the public. It didn't feel wrong. There's so much in that song. 
it was a mixture of what I felt and what Bjorn felt, but also what Benny and Frida were going through at the time. But she found it hard to find the emotional strength. Double finds is fucked up. She found it hard to find the emotional strength to sing the line, tell me, does she kiss like I used to kiss you? Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. It's pretty fucked up. But I do think, you know, if you look through the lyrics, it definitely is. uh, I feel like he's like, there's like the guilt. He like feels, it seems like he feels guilt. Sure. And he's like making her forgive him or something in Mm -hmm. the guilt. I don't know. It's very, very bizarre. Regardless of its actual meaning and significance, the song was another worldwide hit and it was ABBA's last top 10 single in the US. Frida points out, the music scene changed with us. Something like ABBA didn't exist before. Pop like that was not invented yet. Such was ABBA's pop prowess that even the divorce of both couples couldn't derail them. At least not until after they've written some of their best material, including The Winner Takes It All. Surprise! Wow. So they both got divorced and they stayed together. Mm-hmm. So their seventh album, Super Trooper, followed in November of 1980. Super Trooper found them moving a little bit away from disco and returning to the pop sound typical of their early albums. But 1981 brought more personal upheaval. Bjorn remarried in January of of 81. And just one month later, Benny and Frida announced that they were divorcing. Mm. So Benny and Frida were living together since 71, married in 78, and they split within just a couple years of marriage. That's tough. Yeah. Frida remembers her own way of dealing with the split from Benny. She didn't write any passive-aggressive songs. Unable to leave the band, she simply reinvented her image. Quote, I changed my whole style. I cut my hair very short, you know, very spiky. I became another woman in a way, so it it manifested itself mostly like that. But like, what a fucking cliche of like, I, I got, I'm going to cut my hair. I was going to say, I think all women can relate to the, I just got a breakup haircut. <laughs> yeah. And amid everything, they released their last album in 1981 called Visitor, The Visitors. It seems that one reason for ABBA's break that ended up being the end of the band was... This is stupid. So grunge.com is like, it wasn't the the double divorces. It was that Benny and Bjorn were collaborating with Tim Rice on the Broadway musical Chess. Chess? Yeah, Chess the Musical. Sounds riveting. Yeah, so they they released the music on an album before the premiere of the stage show. And it's uh, the story is of a love triangle between an American chess master, a Soviet chess master, and the woman who manages one and falls in love with the other. Oh my god. It was it was released in 84 and uh it was much more successful than the musical which was finally came to the stage in 86, but there was a single from the album sung by Murray Head and it was called One Night in Bangkok. And it might be, this is from grunge.com, the best example of a funny old song that you think will kill at karaoke until you realize the lyrics have aged very, very poorly. I'm sure they have. I like One Night in Bangkok. So quick question, though. You said they were collaborating on the musical, but then you said, like, it did better than the musical. But, like, what? The soundtrack? So they they were collaborating on the music for the musical. So the soundtrack did better. The soundtrack did better than the play itself. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, music versus musical. 
this song also fucks. I'm enjoying it so far. Um, is this makeup racist? What's happening? Yeah, yeah. The, it takes place in Thailand. Of course it's racist. <laughs> to become another song or is this the song this is the song okay i don't love the fucking weird hats that they're wearing no this is all very bad kicks above the waistline sunshine wow so speaking of getting your kicks above the waistline sunshine are you familiar with what ha- is happening to the chess world right now um okay so this is from daily mail the the article says u.s chess grandmaster furiously denies using anal beads to win match against world number one magnus carlson Using anal beads as the pieces? No, no. Speculation has grown online that San Francisco-born Hans Niemann, a relative newcomer to the sport, inserted wireless vibrating anal beads into his body before going up against Magnus Carlsen. How did this help him win? Well, so they speculated that an accomplice watching the match at the Sinkfield Cup in St. Louis used a chess program to determine the perfect move and then sent coded instructions into the vibrating via the vibrating Morse code in your butt? Yes. (laughs) Neiman has vehemently vehemently denied cheating on this occasion, but critics note uh, that, that he has his like ELO rating his like chess rating has shot up um, re- very recently precipitously um, anyway that's fascinating yeah do we have um, you know like video <laughs> we do not have a clip we have a picture though oh I'll take it <laughs> I want like video footage of him at <laughs> amazings or whatever it's called like buying his the cheating pic- the device. Pic- picture's pretty good. Oh, yeah. He looks like he has something up his butt. <laughs> uh, all right. Back to Abba. <laughs> Agneta also made three solo albums and then took a 17-year-long hiatus from, reco- from recording. She became quite reclusive. She was the one that didn't like touring anyway. Um, focusing on astrology and yoga and horses. Hmm. So she she did, she made a comeback in 2004 
Um, and Frida also recorded a solo album called Something's Going On in 82. Um, and it featured a it featured production and drumming from Phil Collins. Oh, great. Yeah, Is Phil it, Collins it, it, a horrible person? No, I think he's okay. okay. It sold almost 2 million copies. So she did, oh, a, did okay. But also in 1982, Frida married a prince. A real life prince? Yeah. So Anna Fried Lingstad is officially Princess Anifried Sini of Rus, Countess of Plauen. <laughs> I don't know, man. Come again? <laughs> Countess of Plauen. It's <laughs> my porn name. I was just about to say. <laughs> um, so most people will know Frida from, the, from ABBA and remember her short-lived marriage to Benny Anderson. But after she divorced him, Frida left Sweden in 1982 relocated to switzerland to live with her boyfriend who was an architect prince heinrich russo of rus count of plowen and he lived they lived in their family castle in freiburg what the fuck so yeah she just like fell in love with the prince every girl's dream yeah right she this marriage ended far sooner than the pair would have hoped because heinrich died of lymphoma in 1999 oh so sad but as a result of the marriage and following Heinrich's death, Frida took on a new name and became Princess Anifried Sini, Sini is her mother's name, of Rus, Countess of Plauen. So from a trash bag victim of a Nazi sexual assault to a real life princess is pretty good. You know what I mean? I would say that it was an unlikely ascent. An unlikely ascent, but like of all of the four of them, She's the one that deserves it the most. Agreed. Yeah. Surprised they weren't like, no. No, you trash Like bag. they're treating Meghan Markle right now. Right. Well, she's white, so they wouldn't. It's fine. She's white. She looks German. She is German. And, and frankly, she's like a huge famous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is from Musicoholics. During... Interviews at this time, Benny and Bjorn denied ABBA's splitting up with quotes like, who are we without our ladies? The initials of Bridget Bardot? <laughs> Shut up. Shut the fuck up, that Benny. That is freaking weird. Uh, Frida and Agneta kept claiming in interviews throughout 83 and 84 that they would come together for a new album. But meanwhile, uh, internal strife between the group and their manager, Stig Anderson, escalated and the band sold their shares in that music studio in 1983 so that dream music studio that they all built together uh they sold hmm. and Joe. this is around the time to back to i think back to anderson back to their manager okay there was also it's like weird agneta like there's a little bit on agneta becoming a recluse she's mm. i mentioned that she became a recluse for 17 years so this possibly was spurned by a car accident Ooh. in which she was thrown out of the window of a bus on her solo tour oh my god she started accumulating phobias her mother died by suicide in 1994 and she was stalked um from the time that she was a young teenager even before abba um in fact one of her stalkers even ruined her album release in 2004 when his threat caused all future interviews to be canceled so isn't this a little bit reminiscent of ace of base yes it is ace of base who modeled their whole fucking shit after abba in the first place and then one of them was like i have to become a recluse i've been stalked i'm traumatized yeah yeah so yeah um, yeah 
very, very weird, right? Uh, Agneta noted that the press has always written that she's a recluse and a mysterious woman, quote, but I'm more down to earth than they think. She lives on a farm with her dogs and lives a normal life. And she says the modest for, uh, as she says, the modest former ABBA member, though, has an estimated fortune of $200 million. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. I think some of that is Russian oil money. Oh, geez. According to Agneta, the money helps, but I don't think about it much. That's, that's when you know you're, you're truly wealthy is when you just don't, you just think, don't about think about money. your money. Uh, you can go shopping and if you see something very special, you can buy it. While she admitted to being somewhat of a hermit for a few years after ABBA split, she explained, I was so tired once ABBA was over and I just wanted to be calm with, and with my children. How many children did she have? I think three. She described how she had married, been an ABBA, had her children, and got divorced all within 10 years. I wonder how I managed it, she admitted. So they're his kids. I was kids. young. They are his kids. So, uh, I think some of them are his kids. So as, as you might recall, teenage Agneta was like this like hot blonde girl. She sang these sultry songs. And even, if you can believe it, even Swedish journalists would make creepy remarks about her in interviews. Oh, shocking. So uh, there was a Dutch truck driver named Gert Vandergraft who was 16 years younger than Agneta, and he he was stalk he was stalking her and settled himself a quarter of a mile from her home on an island. Her home is on an island, her, and, and he's just like <laughs> he's on it. He's like, oh, by the ne- next one, yeah, he's on <laughs> the island is Ekero, which is in Stockholm. Um, and things turned sinister. The police raided his cabin, which included a shrine dedicated to Agneta. And oh he was gosh. still threatening her in 04. Um, but uh, she still has an open mind and heart. Quote, I want to give everyone a chance. Uh, you know, maybe you should rethink that strategy, lady. I agree. So the band, despite saying that they're not broken up, they're fucking broken up. Clearly. Aside from a quick TV appearance in 86, the foursome didn't reunite publicly until they played at the Swedish premiere of Mamma Mia! The Movie in 2008. That's fun. 22 years. Despite the lack of a disbanding announcement, the individual members' endeavors before and after their final public performance, coupled with the collapse of their marriages and the lack of any activity in the following years, made it pretty clear that ABBA had broken up. But this is the weird part. Okay. Even though they weren't together anymore, ABBA became a huge hit in the 90s. As noted by Britannica, ABBA was pretty much inactive as a group throughout most of the 80s and 90s. Yet, it was during that time that their status as pop icons told, turned them into a global phenomenon. ABBA mania happened starting in 1988. Really? Yeah. For some reason, we know why. We know that, that Australia is ABBA's... Mm-hmm number one fan right so it started in australia pop culture and there's even a a, an australian parody slash tribute group called bjorn again bjorn again and they play to this day but it's like it's like weirdly there's like a it's like a gay thing it's like a drag thing bjorn again started playing in 1988 they still continue to play to this day and and it's like a staple of like drag nights and stuff um australia's obsession with abba inspired two movies in 19 just 1994 so muriel's wedding oh that was inspired by abba so there's a there's an abba musical number in muriel's wedding Mm -hmm. 
here we can watch it with Tony Collette and Rachel Griffiths. Love me some Tony Collette. Love me some both of them, actually. I always forget that Tony Collette's Australian. I'm not alone. I'm with Muriel. So Tony Collette and Rachel Griffiths are just dressed like the girls from ABBA. This is fantastic. Tony Collette. Lip syncing Waterloo. <laughs> With like a straight face. Yeah, very funny. Yeah, Tony Collette's face is fucking priceless. Right? I think this is like the final scene in this movie. I don't remember it super well. (laughs) (laughs) And also Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which gave the world Guy Pearce and Hugo Weaving. It's uh, basically an Australian version of Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, from a couple years before that. And that's Leonard Shelby himself, Guy Pierce. There's Agent Smith. This looks fun. Yeah, apparently it's better than uh, Tu Wong Fu, which I don't believe because I fucking love mm-hmm. Tu Wong Fu. That one is good. And here we are. Here we are again on stage. Guy Pierce as Agneta. Hugo Weaving as Anifried. Just lip syncing to Mamma Mia in front of 300 <laughs> screaming queens. <laughs> I just want to go to drag lunch now. Me too, right? <laughs> Abbott drag lunch? Yeah. In, in 1992, the British dance pop duo Erasure released an album of Abba covers called Abba-esque, which topped the charts for five weeks. Ooh. And the, and the same year, 92, Abba Gold, which is Abba's greatest, greatest hits, became the group's best-selling album, selling 4.5 I'm sorry, 5.4 million copies in the UK, and it went on to become the longest-running top 100 of all time. Abba Gold stayed in the UK charts for more than 400 weeks. Shit. It's 8 years. That's 8 years. <sighs> yeah, till 2000. Oh my god. Also, there's a band called Abateens, a Swedish tribute band which featured teenagers performing ABBA covers and they perf- they enjoyed worldwide popularity but in 1999 they changed their name to 18s 18s do you remember that band 18s i do they started as an ABBA cover band. no shit yeah 1999 also saw the success of mamma mia uh which premiered at the, the play mamma mia which premiered in London's West End, and it was the first jukebox musical. It, I said it says it was, but I think it's it, from the context of the rest of the sentence. I don't think it was. Oh. I think I think the sentence is it wasn't the first bo- 
jukebox musical per se but sarah larson noted in the new yorker mamma mia popularized the whole genre and turned it into the dominant modern musical format whether you like it or not okay the show ran in 40 countries on five continents in front of an estimated 54 million people shit so in 2000 amid a revival of several of their hits thanks to mamma mia an american british consortium offered the group one billion dollars to reunite for a hundred shows shit and they 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 declined your money's no good here we have oil money apparently so benny says it's a hell of a lot of money to say no to but we decided it wasn't for us wow agneta explained to radio times we said no because they wanted 250 shows or something it was incredible no chance i thought it was a hundred yeah, she well, she's like estimate. She like overblew it in her mind or something. What number show are we on? Sixty. We're on number. This is our sixtieth show. So I'll take half a billion dollars, please. Well, but split that with me. Uh, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> so Mama Mia was made into a movie in two thousand eight, thanks in large part to nine eleven. Um. How? What? So this is my favorite Mamma Mia fact of all time. Mamma Mia opened on Broadway in October of 2001. So New York City was still reeling from the events of September 11th. Meryl Streep first saw the musical in October of 2001 with her daughter Louisa and her daughter's friends. Streep wrote to the producers of the play to praise them for bringing a little happiness and fun back to the lives of New York City's people following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So when it... So when it came to find when it came time to find an A-list star to carry the movie and get it made, Benny and Bjorn knew exactly where to turn. Oh my god. And Meryl was like, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. So Meryl says yes and performs so the awkwardly, takes it all. So awkwardly. Here we <laughs> no. are. We're gonna watch it. <laughs> We're gonna. We're also gonna watch Winner Takes It All, but I have a sentence before that. Uh, so this is the trailer for Mamma Mia. Number one. Okay. I have a dream, a song to sing. So, for those listening who don't know the premise of Mamma Mia, young Sophie does not know who her father is. She reads her mother's journal to find out that it could be one of three dudes who all had sex with her mom within the same weekend. For the wedding. And she invites all three of them to her wedding not mama mia <laughs> not unlike the plot of gilmore girls in which young april finds out that her dad could have been one of three people and for her science experiment for middle school goes around and test. steals their hair and does a dna test <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's like they never really like mention that there could just be a dna test <laughs> a very easy to perform dna test and Amanda Seyfried is such a babe. She's great. I mean, it's not just one. I mean, was, wasn't Colin Firth already an A-list or not really? Yeah, yeah. I feel yeah, like they have a lot so of A-listers. They have a ton of A-listers, but they all came from Meryl. Okay, so got it. This is like, yeah, she, this is a bit of a dive for, for Mamma Mia, but Pierce Brosnan said yes to the movie without reading the script and knowing that he needed to sing because he cannot sing because he wanted to make out with Meryl's to make out yeah yeah, yeah. like like he's like oh do I kiss Meryl in the movie oh, I'm what in. a creep okay I think it was a little classier than that because he's Pierce Brosnan but sure was it though there's a there's a quote like I've all you know 
to, I wanted to kiss her when we were at Juilliard together, and now I finally get to or something. The, Whatever. Okay. Meryl Streep went to Stockholm to record her vocal for the song, The Winner Takes It All. And according to Benny Anderson, she did it in one take. Oh, shocking. Yeah, right? Um, he called Streep's performance a miracle. So here is Meryl Streep singing The Winner Takes It All. So they thought this was good? Is it just me? Her, her, she's, of all of the bad performances in this, this is kind of in the middle, I th- I'd say. She's she's no Christine Baranski, but she's she's no Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> it's it's also like the way it's shot is so fucking awkward, because he's she's just singing at him. There's like barely any cuts. I played all my cards, and that's what you've done too. Nothing more to say. No more ace to play. Like what? She doesn't know what to do with her hands. She doesn't. Well, this is like it's. That's not her fault. The vocals are not that bad. But like, it's just the body movement in all of her songs in this movie. It's like, what are you doing with your body? (laughs) Look at Pierce Brosnan. Talk about someone who doesn't know what to do. (laughs) Thinking I belong there. I figured it made sense. Building me a fence. Where did that red sash come and from? Why? Maybe it will distract people from this awkward motion. <laughs> Just hide your hands. Give me two coffee rooms. <laughs> I mean, jukebox musicals are tough no matter what because you have to like emote in the in weird ways with song lyrics. Yeah, and it, sometimes it's too contrived. Yeah. yeah. I did really did not like Across the Universe because I felt like it was just so I contrived. hate that movie. <laughs> oh, God, I hate that movie so much. <laughs> Brosnan's like, we have fucking eight more days of shooting this. <laughs> like I used to kiss you. Does it feel the same? When she calls your also, like, this part of the song doesn't make sense in the context of the rest of the movie. Right. Who is she? She He, he like, was engaged in the, in the past. And, but she does, he's, like, been trying to tell her that he's been divorced for 20 years. And, like, just, like, tell her at this point. Like, yeah, this is... She's been singing at you for two and a half minutes here. Put this lady out of her misery. <laughs> This is the problem that I have with most musicals is like, why take five minutes to say like, oh yeah, we got divorced. <laughs> uh, the sequel, 2018's Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, doubled down on its spectacular kitschiness by bringing in Cher. Okay, I didn't see this long... one. Confession. Oh, if it did not watch. Rules. It is much, much better than the first one. The first one I think is like an objectively bad movie with good music and they didn't quite know like the high camp that they should have been engaging in uh-huh. and in the second one they're like oh yeah this is campy as shit so they christine Baranci can't stop like fucking young dudes they double down on its spectacular kitschiness by bringing in Cher as a long-lost glamorous grandmother 
Cher went on to re-release. I'm sorry, Cher went on to release her first album, her first tribute album of ABBA covers, appropriately t- entitled "Dancing Queen," in which the 72-year-old makes ABBA songs not only sound like they should have been written for her in the first place, but like they firmly belong in 2018. This is from Rolling Stone. Mm. Uh, so this is a clip from Mamma Mia. Here we go again where Cher sings Fernando to a character named Fernando <laughs> played by friend of a friend Andy Garcia. Oh yeah. Not bad. You got to work on your breathing and you were a little pitchy. Is what I would say if I wasn't a loving relative. Speaking as a grandmother. I'm so proud I could combust. <laughs> You've got glitter in your veins. You got it from me. Cher's looking pretty now, good too. I need to find Sky because- Yeah, she can't know, move her mouth though. <laughs> where is Senor Cienfuegos? He'll know where Sky is. Fernando Cienfuegos. That's an unusual name. He's an unusual man. See for yourself. Andy Garcia is like 25 years younger than Cher. Fernando? <laughs> Mi amor, Mexico, 1959. Eh. Can you hear the drums, Fernando? No way. I she just breaks out as one yeah, does in a musical. <laughs> also, like, I agree that these songs sound tailor-made for Cher. Just her per- perfect for her vocal range. I could hear the distant drums and sounds of bugle calls were coming from afar. They were close enough for Lando. Every hour, every minute seemed to last eternally. I was so afraid for Lando. We're young and full of life, and none of us prepared to die. And I'm not ashamed to say the roar of guns and cannons almost made me cry. Have to stress, guns and cannons, late edition to this. So this is from The Guardian. Unfashionable at their peak, ABBA have spent the time since they stopped recording, slowly moving away from being the kind of pleasure people class as guilty. These days, musicians from Bjork to Noel Gallagher are happy to praise them. Still, it seems unlikely that they will ever be held in the same regard as their heroes like the Beatles or the Beach Boys. But Not why are we holding up Noel Gallagher as the example? Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the Guardian. So, like, he can't fucking... <laughs> I agree. But also because Noel Gallagher is, I think, the like the the paragon of pretension. Yeah. Okay. And he likes them. So f- this is Frida. I think being Swedes, we have a very down-to-earth way of looking at ourselves and what we do. We never had any, what do you call it? Hubris? Bjorn says, coming from Sweden, we were always regarded as outsiders. We were never part of that scene. The drug scene. I have to say... Yeah, the drug scene, but also like the like international acclaim scene. Um, 
he says, I have to say, I've always been much more impressed by the fact that millions of people all over the world would buy our records. For me, that's there's no comparison. Frida says, it does feel satisfying, I must say, that modern bands regard us like that, to hear that we were the best pop group ever. For me, it's wonderful to hear. <laughs> the Guardian and the, Stan- and the Evening Standard both report that ABBA have sold almost 400 million albums and singles worldwide, though Wikipedia puts them in the 150 million range, and their own site claims that they're like at 220 million. So it's, it's unclear how they're measuring this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In 2013, the group pledged not to reunite. Quote, we will never appear on stage again. There is simply no motivation to regroup. That's from Bjorn. That year, they also opened an ABBA museum in Stockholm. It's like Dollywood. You can walk around the Folk Park. There's a replica of Polar Studio and a telephone that only the four members of ABBA have the number of. (laughs) So they just will call. Just whoop, ring, ring. Um, in addition, there's like a weird internet piano. So th- I learned this from the podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish, mm-hmm. which is a great podcast. There is a player piano connected to Benny's piano in his home studio. So whenever he plays it, 24 hours a day, it will play remotely in the museum. <laughs> But a few years later, after rejecting offers to do public reunions, including including their 2010 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which they were like, no. no we uh, so in 2016, they finally returned to the studio together. It was announced that the group would be reuniting in the form of a new digital entertainment experience. They were going to feature, they were going to be featured as lifelike avatars dubbed avatars based based on their late 70s tour look um okay i'm into this yeah in 2018 they announced that they had recorded two new songs i still have faith in you and don't shut me down and by 2019 bjorn revealed that neither song was complete yet he hinted at a final release in the spring of 2019 and the possibility of a third song but by september 2019 Bjorn stated in an interview that there were actually five new ABBA songs set to release in 2020. As of early 2020, Benny confirmed that the songs would be released in September. And in April of 2020, Bjorn stated that in the wake of the pandemic, the Avatar project would be delayed. But finally, in 2021, I Still Have Faith in You was released as a part of ABBA's new album, their first in 40 years, Voyager. And that's what we're going to go out on today. I'm ready. Hi, listeners of Even the Future here. Something weird happened with Lindsay's microphone, and only her computer mic picked up the last, like, two minutes of the show. So we apologize for you having to hear some noisy computer mic for the last little bit, but, you know, you'll get over it. Apologies. We'll do better next time, we promise. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. And for longer and weirder stuff, drop us a line at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Let us know what your favorite ABBA song is. Mine's Waterloo. If you dress up like ABBA for Halloween, send us a pic. Yeah. And uh, tell your friends about us. It's the best way for people to find us. And let us know if there's any songs you want to hear us do deep dives on. If you want to support the show. Oh, yeah. If you want to support the show. Go to lyricsforlunch.com and click support the show. And tune in next week when we do this all again with a brand new song. Well, it's not going to be a new song. 
No, it's new, be new, new to us song. <laughs> to this podcast. New to this podcast song. But until then, I'm Amy Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying the winner takes it all. Oh, who we are. How inconceivable it is to reach this far. Do I have it in me? Believe it is in there For I know I hear a bittersweet song In the memories we share Do I have it in me?